0: Fair enough? All right, so let's look, at to, let's look together. Um, at the last petition of the Lord's Prayer, uh, Matthew 6, and I'll read the entire prayer. Jesus said, he said, do not be like them, that is the pagans. He says, for your father knows, verse 8, what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this outline of prayer given to us by your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, Help us, Lord, to understand um, what it is to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, that we might apply that to our prayer life daily as we grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son and pray without ceasing, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, as I said, this, this text brings us to the end of the series on what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And it's one of the passages in the New Testament that makes clear uh, that, that praying and living go hand in hand for the believer. And Jonathan Edwards commented on this. And he said, and I quote, Prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is of life. And to say a man lives a life of faith and yet lives a prayerless life is every whit as inconsistent and incredible as to say that a man lives without breathing. A prayerless life is so far from being a holy life that it is a profane life. He that lives so lives like a heathen who calleth not on God's name. He that lives a prayerless life lives without God in the world, end quote. And what he means by that is, you know, a Christian who doesn't pray is like a pagan who doesn't know God and therefore doesn't pray to God, because he, he can't. There's no, commune, no communing with God, and that's, that's his point. But Jesus here provides us a very fundamental teaching about prayer. And, and I think for any Christian to apply this to their, to their daily life as an outline, you, you're reminded that prayer can be brief. Prayer doesn't have to be long, extended periods of time in which we enter into to communing with our Lord, Jesus. Most of the prayers we read in Scripture are very short, very precise, very to the point. And if we can use this as an outline of prayer, it will only, it'll only increase um, the prayer life of God's people. So Jesus here is giving us a fundamental teaching about prayer. We've looked at each of the petitions thus far as we uh, wrap up with the last. That is, lead us not into temptation. But it, it, the fundamental teaching of prayer also provides us a fundamental teaching on, on how we're to live as believers. This, of course, we find this prayer in, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And, in knowing God and knowing ourselves is the sum total of what we need to know in order to live this life, right? The more we grow in grace and knowledge of Christ, the more we learn about ourselves. So we must know about the Lord, we must know about ourselves, and that is precisely what this prayer is patterned after, knowing God and knowing ourselves. And first and foremost, we need to know God as our heavenly Father. He is our Father. We need to know what it means to hallow His name. What it means to seek his kingdom and that we might seek his will in all things. And we also need to know certain things about ourselves. Our need for daily bread. That is, beloved, our acknowledgement of utter dependence upon God for everything in this life. And we need an assurance of ongoing forgiveness. This is what we learned about, that paternal forgiveness of God. Uh, since we're commanded to pray, forgive us our sins. That's a command of God. Pray for the forgiveness of sins. Well, being in Christ, we know hopefully the difference between positional and paternal forgiveness. In Christ, we're cloaked in the righteous robes of Christ. We're forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future. Those were atoned for on the cross. But there's also a, a daily asking of forgiveness because we still live in a body and we therefore still. Sin. It's very simple. We still sin. Amen? So he commands us, pray, forgive us our debts. And then he commands us also to forgive those who trespass against us, along with our need to be safeguarded against satanic assault. And that's what we enter into this morning. So th- the last three petitions, if you notice, are joined together by the word and. And. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation. Three constant needs of God's people. Provision for daily needs and the forgiveness of sins and the deliverance from evil. Now the petitions for deliverance from temptation and evil, they're not linked With the word and, if you notice. It says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So this, this shows us that they belong together as two parts of one request. Two parts of one request. That is deliverance from temptation. That is from the evil one, from temptation and the evil one who stands behind it. Now, it can be translated evil, deliver us from evil. It can also be translated evil one, again, the one who stands behind it. And obviously, we need God's deliverance from any source of evil in any form, amen? So the evil one is behind all evil, and... You can pray either one, because in the, in the Greek text, it, it's either that word is either in the masculine or in the neuter, and you can, you can use either one of those terms. That's why in some Bibles it's translated evil, in some it's translated evil one. So it, it, this is protection in the form of deliverance from temptation and evil, doing evil, that we're concerned about in uh, the wrap-up of the Lord's Prayer. Now, grammatically, the experts point out that this petition is in the form of parallelism, you know, like many of the Psalms and such. And and that is to say a statement is made, and then it's repeated and developed. Statement is made, and then it's further further, uh, developed for understanding. So the first part of the temptation, it says, lead us not into temptation. The second part, deliver us from the evil one. So there isn't just temptation to reckon with. There's also evil or an evil one to reckon with. Amen? If you've been a Christian long enough, you know this by now. <laughs> so th- this is a statement. It's, it's made both positively and negatively in, in order to emphasize um, this point, the, the point that the Lord is driving home here. Um, for those that are his, leading us to consider the petition from both the negative and, and the positive um, points of view. Now, this word temptation, when you read the Bible, or when you even think about temptation, we, we always seem to use it in, in a negative sense. Fair enough to say? When you think of temptation, you think of it in a negative sense, meaning to solicit someone to do uh, evil. And then it confuses some people when they read passages like James 1, which we'll look at in a minute, which states categorically that God does not tempt anyone, right? So, if, if, if that is so, some will say, why pray God not lead us into temptation? And this assumes that God does, not, that, that God does lead us into temptation on certain occasions, so confusion arises because ever since the 17th century, uh, the use of the word tempt is most often translated in the negative. In the negative. But the word is capable of a positive meaning in the sense of testing, in the, s- in the sense of trial. And in the Greek, the same word is used in both senses. Trial, temptation. And James uses it in that sense. If you look at James chapter 1, turn there. We see in the NIV, the New American Standard, the the ESV translation, we see the word trial. It's translated trial instead of uh, temptation. James 1 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under, here's the word, trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And we'll look at the rest of that text in just a bit. But here, God, the Lord's command in in leading us and teaching us to pray is, is a prayer here for daily protection. Daily protection. And in this request, Jesus intends more than a prayer against our faith being tested, beloved. Okay? It's more than our faith being tested that he's getting at in this prayer. And what's really in mind here are situations that might solicit pressure upon the believer to stumble and fall into sin. And that's what James alludes to here in this text. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So here he speaks of the way in which many things come into our lives. Trials come into our lives. Tests come into our lives. To test our faith. And it's the same word that is used in the text for temptation. And here's the point. It's God's trial that the evil one uses to tempt the believer to sin. God sends a trial. You got the evil one who, who's trying to, to, to prompt our, our flesh, our mind, our thinking to sin. J.I. Packer put it like this. Quote, Temptations are Satan's work, but Satan is God's tool As well as his foe. And it is ultimately God himself who leads his servants into temptation. Permitting Satan to try to seduce them for beneficent purposes of his own. However, though temptations do not overtake men apart from God's will. The actual prompting to do wrong is not of God. Nor does it express his command. According to James, the desire which impels to sin is not God's, but one's own, and it is fatal to yield to it. And we'll see that in the rest of James as well, end quote. Notice James adds in verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And James here means by tempted. The, the particular solicitation that leads us to fail the test. The, solici- the solicitation that leads us to fail the test. And to be drawn into sin. And here God has no part in it. No part. That's James' point. So we're to, be pray, we're to pray as believers that we be saved from that. As the trial comes... We don't fall prey to the temptation in the midst of the trial to sin. Jesus said, watch and what did he say to his disciples? Watch and pray so that you will not what? Fall into temptation. Watch and pray. Many times Christians don't watch and pray. We're called to watch, discern, pray, watch, discern. We pray, Lord, don't allow us to be brought into that place of temptation. Protect us, Lord, in the midst of trials that we're not drawn into temptation to be drawn under, unto or into its power to do evil, where in turn we become faithless to Jesus, the faithful one. That's the prayer. Guard us, Lord, in the midst of these trials that we might not fall prey to the temptation of the evil one. This is what we pray. We're weak, amen? You can't live the Christian life in your own strength. That's impossible. That's the point. That's why we pray. We're weak and susceptible. And therefore, once again, we're pointed back to the Father in prayer who's the only one that can keep us from falling because we have the Spirit. We're going to learn today. We're going to learn today about the Holy Spirit. You know how how often the Holy Spirit is not taught with regard to the Christian life? Paul makes clear today. He makes clear who's truly a Christian. It's the most validating hope we have is the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, Peter adds a word of caution, that we should not be surprised. He says, don't be surprised, Christian. Don't be surprised when the painful trial comes into your lives. Are you you ever surprised? Don't be. (laughs) Don't be surprised. James recognizes that, that he delights to prove to us our faith, that it's real and genuine. This is what the Lord loves to do. Through the way of trial, he proves what your faith is. Is it real? Is it not real? And the man who perseveres under the test is greatly blessed, James goes on to say, because when it's over, what does he receive? The crown of life. At the end of it all. So whenever God leads us into these kinds of situations, he always, always, always leaves an exit plan. Right? Right? In your offices, where you work, there's an exit plan. If there's a fire drill, right? I think we have them here somewhere. There's one in my office door. Anyway, I need direction how to get out of my office. Apparently, <laughs> and there's a door right there. But legally, we have to have those things up. And God always leaves the exit route for those that are His. First Corinthians 10. No temptation. Which temptation? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. In other words, you and I are not going to face any kind of temptation that others have not already faced and are also facing. So we don't need to walk around like this. I can't believe this is happening to me. Why me? Why me? Wah, wah, wah. There's no temptation that sees you except such as common to man. And God is faithful. He will not lead you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10.13. You see, temptation, beloved, is not sin. You need to teach your children that as well. Temptation is not sin. Christ was tempted as we are, yet, Hebrew says, without sin. The sinless one was tempted in every way, and we know he never sinned. So it's not sin to be tempted. Temptation only becomes sin when the suggestion of evil is accepted and yielded to. So as a Christian, you have the Spirit. You can either yield to the Spirit or yield to the temptation. And if the Spirit is in you, he provides the way of escape. So you either yield to the way of escape via the direction, the power... Of the Holy Spirit through the finished work of Christ, or you yield to the temptation. Amen? And that's when temptation becomes sin in the direction for which we determine to yield. So when the desire and opportunity Meet together. There's the desire and the opportunity. Here's the opportunity. Here's the trial. Here's the opportunity to sin. And and then the evil one comes and and, and prompts our flesh to yield to that, stimulating our mind to go this way because sin satisfies, but only temporarily. Always only temporarily. So a desire comes, opportunity comes. They meet together, and sometimes when they do we are sure to fall. And we need to pray that those two things be kept apart. <laughs> that they be kept apart. So all this to say, we pray like this because first and foremost, you know, this plan of Jesus is to show us and remind us that we must recognize our weakness. We must rec- recognize our weakness is. And never think that we're above being tempted in certain ways. Right? May we never think or say, that could never happen to me. Now you're really in dangerous territory. And if we think like that, we we have not made much progress in the road of sanctification. Which we'll learn something about today as well. So, James, in this text, also unmasks any pretentiousness on the part of the believer by insisting there's only one person responsible for their sin. Speaking to Christians, who's responsible? It's not God, it's me, it's you. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now notice this deadly sequence. But, verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his what? His own desire. There's a fishing term, there's a hunting term. Be lured away, baited into a trap. Hooked, enticed, like fish in a net, or fish on a hook. So each person is tempted when he's lured, he's enticed by his own desire, and then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Verse 16, do not what? Don't be deceived. Which means that we have the potential to be deceived. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, Christian. There's evil desire, being dragged away to enticement, into conception, to birth, finally, death. So here's a sixfold descent that proceeds from the mind. It begins in the mind, that flows in and through the way of affections. And then to the will determined to do this. And then finally to outward action and to a condition of enslavement. And we're reminded of the story of David and Bathsheba, amen? You see that unfold. You see that go down. It's first in his mind. He captures something in his eye. It remains in his mind. He entertains the things that are in his mind. These are affections that began to grow. And then his will was determined now to respond to his affections, which are contrary to the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Who's there? And then it led to outward action and enslavement, death. It was the literal death of Bathsheba's husband. And David went into this downward spiral. So he says the prayer deliver us from evil, deliver us from the evil one. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Those are words of encouragement to us as well as words of warning. Christians must be encouraged and warned, warned and encouraged through and throughout our Christian life. Every Christian, every believer who's determined to live an uncompromised life, number one, because they have the Spirit of God. If you have the Spirit of God, you're determined to live a life for the glory of God because He puts it there. He lives there. That's his work. It's the person of the, the third person of the triune Godhead lives in the believer. And when you li- want to live like that, you can expect, guaranteed, to meet personal opposition of the evil one. He'll be there. So here's the prayer. So how then? Okay, when we pray this, we're living life. You go to work, you go to your office, you're faced with temptation every day. We all are. There's trials in our lives every other day. How does our Heavenly Father deliver us from the evil one? Well, as we think through this, sometimes it's through his sovereign providential care. Sovereign works of God. There's that person in your office. They're just prone, they are bent on getting you to live like and be like him or her. Trying, they know you're a Christian. They're always trying to lure, right? I know someone who professes Christ, who is living in personal, absolute rebellion, who actually goes out with other Christians and tries to get them to do that which is dishonoring to God, almost mocking Christians. Ho, 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 ho. Jesus said, Beware lest you cause one of these little ones of mine to stumble, for it would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and you to be thrown in the depths of the sea. And that, by the way, was a pagan form of punishment. God forbid anyone who professes Christ to mock Christians and cause them to stumble. God forbid. But God, he may, he, he may move, you know, and allow certain circumstances to occur where all of a sudden you show up to work and you're dreading facing this person and this constant never-ending temptation. All of a sudden they're gone. What happened to so-and-so? Oh, they got fired. There's the sovereign, providential hand of God. That's one way he'll do it, amen? And we're like, well, oh, thank you, it's gone. It's gone because they're gone. And sometimes he simply removes the desire. Have you ever had a desire? Okay, here you are. You became a Christian. And there's this, 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 this propensity to, to, to fall into this one particular kind of sin. And this desire never seems to go away. It's just a destructive habit. But all of a sudden, you seem to be immune to that temptation. You ever been there? I have. It's a blessing. You're just like all of a sudden immune to it. It used to be such a weak point. So sometimes he does that. But that's really not the customary way. All throughout the Bible, all throughout Christian experience, the customary way that God's work, that God works in this, is to allow us to experience the full force of temptation. The full force of temptation. The full force of its attraction (laughs) because he wants us to engage in the life of the spirit we get this he wants us engaged not disengaged but engaged because he's there this is an abiding relationship amen this is a living relationship and that engagement is the engagement of sanctification If you think sanctification is letting go and letting God, you're so wrong. He wants us to battle. He wants us to engage. Because it's often through the experience of fighting, battling, and running the race that we experience growth. Amen? Empowered by him, enabled by him, led by him for the glory of him. That's living the Christian life. You don't work out. You work out a while. You ever work out before? Get all yoked up, built, tough. There's an example right here in the front row. (laughs) When you stop working out, what happens to your muscles? Atrophy, man. They shrink, they wither. And spiritual maturity is stunted by passivity. God wants to develop the skills of his people by the power of the the spirit to obey the command to resist temptation. To resist the devil. And when you do, what will he do? He will flee. Now most people leave out the first part of that text. Look at James 4. Now, everyone quotes the second part of James 4, verse 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Preface by verse 7, the beginning. Submit yourselves, therefore, to to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Don't be a double-minded person, he says. You're in Christ. You have the Spirit. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He will flee. We see the, first thing, the same thing in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 9. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, we should immediately remember, beloved. And these go hand in hand. In order to pray this, we have to remember what's available to us, and that is the whole armor of God and the command to put on. The whole armor of God. In order that we can stand and resist the what? Schemes of the devil. Schemes, tricks. Now that of course means that not only are we to be intimately acquainted with each piece piece of the armor, but we must also know what each piece represents. Some people just say, well, Jesus is my whole armor. Well, yes, he is, but what does that mean? Paul breaks it down in applicable form. So what does it mean in order to face this battle? I've done studies on that. I mean, you have the belt of truth. It means as a Christian you walk in truthfulness because you can. You have the breastplate of righteousness to to protect your emotions and the seat of your thinking. To walk righteously because you can. You have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shoes of gospel peace. It doesn't mean go Spread the news, it means stand on the the fact of the gospel. You stand on the truth of the gospel, you can stand firm in that truth. It's the grace that we have that has provided peace with God, and it's the grace, Romans 5, in which we what? Stand. We stand in this grace. We have the helmet of salvation, and the helmet of salvation is to protect your thinking. It's, okay, you're, you have the helmets, that are already in the army. It doesn't mean go get saved. It's, you must maintain the hope of glory according to the promises of God in Christ. And then you have the shield of faith because fiery darts of temptation, they will come. They're flaming darts of accusation, flaming darts of temptation. And it's the shield of faith, not faith in faith, but faith in Christ dependent upon the spirit to be able to conquer so to pray this, we, 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 we have to know the armor, know what each piece represents, and put it on. Walk in it. Walk in it. And if you, you know, if the belt of truth, if you're not walking and living truthfully, the first person you're lying to is yourself. Amen? Everything goes down from there. Because of the truth, we walk truthfully, we live truthfully, we speak truthfully. So uh, when we think about these things and we think about the tempter and and all this, we never want to overestimate the power of Satan nor do we want to underestimate his power, amen? We never want to overestimate or underestimate his power or his prowess. He is a crafty, crafty creature. And he is the enemy of God's people. Now, a lot of people want to credit him Is the author of darkness in the same way that we describe God as the author of light? Okay, and we have to be careful here because God we know is the sovereign author over all creation, including Satan. He's the sovereign author. Satan is a created angel, he is not the opposite of God. Amen? He is not. He is not the opposite of, of the creator. He is a fallen angel. His counterpart is not God. It's Michael the archangel, if you will. <laughs> now, although for many it's, been, it's fashionable to, to, to accredit Satan, um, to you know, accredit the devil to, with every temptation that we face, but we must always remain mindful that spiritual warfare involves, yes, the evil one, and we pray as we're instructed here, but it also involves the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, good way to remember is there's the world, there's our flesh, and the devil who attempts to um, inflict or, 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 or utilize the world and the flesh To cause us to succumb to sinning against our faithful God. He tries to manipulate those two things. He's a master manipulator, he's a trickster. So we can't just say the devil made me do it. That's the point. You remember Flip Wilson? Any of you remember Flip Wilson? The Flip Wilson show? It was back in the day, wasn't it, Betty? And he had this character he would play. Wasn't it? It was a woman he would dress up as, right? Geraldine. Geraldine yeah. The devil made me do it. <laughs> and, 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 and he wants to. He wants to pull us down to, to to the to the praise, P-R-E-Y, to the prey of 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 worldliness, of worries of this life, cares of the world, the love of money, and on and on and on. And we're just trapped as the people of God. And at the same time, we should never, um, you know, overestimate him. His intellect, we don't want to underestimate him either, because his intellect is far beyond any human that has ever or ever will live. Amen? That's why I, I trip when I hear people talking to the devil. You know, in a prayer meeting? start yelling at him and ranting because you really are foolish. That's ridiculous. So any Christian who's unaided from above will never be a match for this angel. Never be a match for temptation. We're aided from above. We're empowered from above by the resident presence of the Holy Spirit called to yield and walk with him and pray. Spurgeon referred to Satan is an angel whose intellect has been sharpened by malice. <laughs> sharpened by malice, which is a general term for evil, evil. He's the one who knew just what to say to Eve in the garden. Okay, in, the, in, 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 in the state of innocence, he knew exactly what to say. And then sin entered in, terminated by death. He knew how to lure Samson. Okay, here's the great Samson. He lured him little by little through a woman by the name of Delilah. Little by little. The scripture says this in Judges. Delilah pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him and his soul was vexed unto death. Judges 16 and then as we all know he fell prey to that temptation to where she cut off his hair when he was just sound asleep like a little baby the Lord put a deep sleep on him in her little lap and she cut off his hair that's where the strength of the Lord lied right there through the, the Nazarite vow he was set apart for this and he was awakened to the surge of Philistines and what did he say? I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. They seized him, gouged his eyes out, and bound him in shackles, and he ground at the mill in prison the rest of his life as a child of God. A man of faith, Hebrews 11, who fell prey to this, and died in that one last feat of strength pushing over the pillars where all of the Philistines died and he died with them he died with the world twice satan found the achilles heel of david the situation with bathsheba and him in his pride counting his military troops and he suffered the consequence of both always remaining a child of god amen And suffered the consequences. So when we pray. Lead us not but deliver us from the evil one. We are acknowledging beloved. That God is sovereign over all things. Including temptations. Including Satan. And everything else that's involved. He's a tool. And God will use him to refine us. If he so chooses to do so. Amen. Augustine referred to Satan as the ape of God. Luther said, the devil is God's devil. So while our enemy, Satan, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, we must remember this, as it's been said, he is on a leash, the length of which is determined by the Lord. Determined by the Lord. In Matthew 4, what do we read? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Here here it is. Jesus was led by who? The Holy Spirit. He was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted. So in that case, while Satan was the great agent of temptation... It's God who was the author of testing. Satan, the author, or, or the agent rather of temptation, only reveals that it's God, according to this text, that was the author of the testing. And he will test you, he will test us. Satan used the occasion to tempt Christ to sin, whereas God used the occasion to demonstrate that he could not sin. And it was for the glory of God, God was glorified. Jesus couldn't sin. So we must bring the poverty, beloved, of our needs under the care and riches of the Father. And that's who we go to in prayer, all by the mediatorial work of Christ. We come to the Father in his name. His mediation. So prayer is necessary and marks those, prayer marks those who are ever dependent upon him. Shows dependency. People who don't pray uh, show nothing of dependence. You can say you're dependent upon God. And if we don't pray, we we show no no thought of dependence. Amen? (laughs) And this is our instruction. Jesus said in Luke 18, We ought always to pray and not lose heart. Not lose the determination to do so. So here this prayer is a wonderful blueprint as we've looked at it over the weeks in providing you an effective prayer life through this, the, the holy, righteous Son of God who grants us access to the Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Access because of the Son. So that is to, to pray for the exaltation of his name, pray for his kingdom to be furthered, for his will to be done, along with our ever-dependent need in him for, prezi- for provision for pardon and protection. That's what this prayer is about at the end, protection, for which only he can provide. So to conclude, think about this. Whenever we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we're reminded that we are also looking forward by faith to the day in which we will be completely free from any and all temptation. Do you long for the day? Amen. Amen. Whoever said that, amen. The very fact that Christ stood the temptation in the wilderness is our guarantee that one day the kingdom in its fullest sense will be ours. the full manifestation of his kingdom. A new heaven, new earth. There'll be no temptation there. There'll be not you to deal with as you have to deal with now. And the tempters we learn will be thrown into the. The one who tempts will be thrown into the lake of fire. That's his destiny. So temptations that we currently face will be done away with forever. The new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven with divine assurance that nothing evil, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor anyone who, is shameful or deceitful will enter it. It's for those who are in Christ receive this glorious this glorious future and that is only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of what? life, because anything outside of him in that book is death so this is our prayer, this is how dependent we are beloved and we must remain dependent strengthen yourself and your self determination in your mind will not enable you to stand Amen? Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we do thank you for the instruction before us in how to pray. And Lord, we need help. and uh, The constant daily reminder of praying because we're so dependent, but yet oftentimes we forget how dependent we are. So help us, Lord, to pray as outlined for us here in the Sermon on the Mount, to apply these principles to our lives, and not simply to recite the prayer, uh, but to pray and, and use it as an outline, that we, we can be brief, but may our, may our hearts be engaged by the Spirit who is in us, to pray as we ought, so that we can walk as we ought, for the glory of Of the one who has redeemed us. We pray these things in thanks in an ever dependent mode and mindset. In Jesus' name we pray.